Hi, and thanks for tuning in to My Adventures at Home Brewing. I'm Dan Matthews, and come along with me as we talk about things for new home brewers, from gadgets to how we got started to, I don't know, all the mistakes we make along the way. So come along for the ride and have a beer or two along the way. looking for that yeast that can help you attain the best beer possible that you're looking for escarpment laboratories escarpment laboratories are located in guelph ontario and make some of the finest yeasts in canada if you want to make the beer that you want and have consistent results all the time you need to check out escarpment laboratories Brew Donkey Tours are back. We closed our doors for the health of our community, but now with new safety protocols, we're getting ready to open the barn doors. Starting July 24th, the donkey rides again. Every ticket includes ample samples, behind the scenes tours, and a healthy dose of learning. Support local breweries and tourism with a brewery tour by bus. Get your tickets before they sell out at brewdonkey.ca. Brew Donkey, brew tours that kick ass. Hey guys, Dan here. Have you ever had a problem getting your glass or plastic fermenter clean? Well, I've just been introduced to something that's brand new. Uh, it's called Scrubber Duckies. It's a magnetic scrubber meant for glass or plastic fermenters. All you do is you drop this down inside your fermenter, use the handle, and scrub through the crud that's left over from the crucin. I've seen a lot of things, but this is, seems to be one of the neatest and coolest things out there right now. If you're having a problem getting your plastic or glass fermenter clean, this is something to use. Scrubber duckies. It's Dan with my adventures at home brewing once more. Thank you very much for coming along for the ride and a beer or two along the way. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to have someone with us who is, I'd say, almost an expert in the flavors of beer. We have Crystal Luxmore with us from the Beer Sisters down in Toronto. How's it going, Crystal? Good. How are you, Dan? Good. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So uh, how about you tell us a little bit about what you and I believe it's your sister uh, do down in Toronto? Yeah, we have a company called Beer Sisters uh, Inc. And um, we write about beer. So we write for, uh, for those of you in Ontario, the LCBO Food and Drink magazine. We write for the Globe and Mail. Uh, we edit. Uh, the Growler Beer Guide, and um, we also consult, so we do some sensory training for breweries. Um, we've worked for the Cicero Marketing, their program. I do some teaching and off flavors and, um, like, beer basics, and we um, we run, we, we built out the beer list. We run the beer list for a very big farmer's market in Manitoba that goes through a lot of beer called the uh, Common at the Forks. Um and we do tastings, a lot of uh, corporate events, uh, even now in, in the pandemic, virtual events for like law firms and stuff who want to get together and taste beer and learn about beer. So we'll, we'll read those as well. Oh, cool. So how did you guys get into the beer scene? I mean, it's not necessarily something that everyone kind of just falls into. Yeah, I kind of fell into it in that I was a freelance journalist here in Toronto and um I've been looking for a beat. I, I, I kind of wrote about everything under the sun and uh, people told me, you know, just concentrate on one area and I could never really stick to anything. And I, I never thought I'd be able to make a living writing about beer. 
Um, but I wrote one story about beer when I was visiting my, my other sister in Australia. I really, really dug it. And um, I love beer. I've always drank beer over wine and stuff. And um, But I just really didn't know that much about it. When I was in Australia, we were like going to all these breweries that were pairing beer with cheese. And that was back in like 2010. And when I came back to Canada, there was a new like alt-weekly in Toronto that wanted me to write a column on real estate. And I said, well, what about beer? And that was like really the beginning. And so when I got that column, I decided I needed to learn more about beer. And I did my Prudhomme certification, which is like an Ontario like beer sommelier thing. And then mm-hmm. I, I also worked my way through the Cicerone program, which has four levels. So currently I'm an advanced Cicerone, one of 14 in Canada. And um, that's really helped me to develop a good palate and understand flavor in a really like deep and meaningful way that I, that I, I wouldn't get, I think if I was just working as a journalist um, and along the way, I just kind of built up my business. And then about five years ago, I convinced my little sister Tara to join me and she became a certified Cicerone as well. And, um, and we, mm-hmm. we run the business full time together. And that's like a real joy is working with your, your sibling and like having a family owned business. Ours is super small, but um, it gives us a lot of flexibility and freedom, which we really enjoy. And, and also the chance to work with great beer makers across the country. Oh, right on. So you mentioned the Cicerone program. How did, are, are you going to possibly go up towards trying for your master Cicerone or are you just going to hang tight with advanced? I don't know. Um, maybe one day it just sort of depends. I'm, um i have some other things i'd like to do uh i'll possibly write a book or um yeah i'm not like i'm not dead set on becoming a master a master exam is my my exam was one day a master is two and it's uh, pretty intense and i think a lot of what i would learn i would never use um things like you know how to install a draft system and balance it all and stuff like that like you kind of have to know every single aspect of beer and much of it okay. I don't work in a bar or restaurant so I wouldn't need um so yeah cramming for the advanced Cicerone was nine months of my life and extremely stressful having said that mm. I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed the exam and I learned a lot so I haven't put it I haven't said no but I'm about to have a baby in four weeks my third baby um congratulations i have a five and a seven year old so uh like i'm not it's not really the right time for me to buckle down and do my master i'm just trying to keep my business afloat during the pandemic and uh and have some kind of maternity leave even though i'm an entrepreneur and get no benefit so (laughs) for right now (laughs) no right no totally get it um so let's dive into a little bit what we were what we said we were going to talk about today a little bit so why should home brewers understand what their flavors of their beer mean what the flavors of their beer mean yeah uh what do you mean mean like so if if they have like a, a is it important for a brewer to understand or a homebrew to understand when, when they're making a beer, what their flavors that they're aiming for should be and what they're not? Should it be like, should they be able to notice if there's like, it's supposed to be a multi taste, but maybe something's not quite right. Is it important to, to really notice those certain nuances and characteristics in your beer? Yeah. It's important if you want to hit the style, like say you're brewing, you know, uh, Hellas, and yeah, you know, you want it to, and you're reading these words that say like crackery or 
um, like pizza dough and you have no idea what that actually tastes like or smells like in a beer, then from a sensory point of view, when you're doing your evaluations, like, you know, you can take all your measurements and know that you hit the right ABV and, um, and your, you know, your gravity is where it should be and all that stuff. But if the beer doesn't taste like the beer it's supposed to taste like, then none of that stuff really matters to people that are drinking it. Right. Um, and especially if you right. want to enter competitions or something, if the flavor profile is not there, um, or if there's off flavors in your beer that shouldn't be there, then that's gonna, um, that's, that's gonna majorly impact your score. Plus, I just think like, honestly, I think most homebrewers brew beer because they want to make good tasting beer. And the more you get to know flavor and like how to evaluate flavor, then the better your palate becomes and the better your beer becomes. So how would someone better their palate so they better understand what they're making? Yeah, I think that um, it's important to know that no one is born with a good palate. There's all these myths out there of like super tasters. I wrote a store, a column on this for the Globe and Mail on the myth of the super taster. And, um, and people seem to think that, you know, a Cicerone or a wine psalm knows, has such a great palate that that's the way they came into it. I didn't have one. Uh, I trained my palate and I think that anyone can do it. It's just like building muscles at the gym. Um, so my biggest tip for building your palate is smell everything all the time and do so mindfully because the flavors and aromas of, of beer are ones that are all around us. And so with our tongues, we can only detect six different flavors, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, and fat. These are all things you can detect with your taste buds. But um, okay. so if you're just drinking your beer, say with your nose plug, that's all you're going to get, which is a very limited perception. But our noses can pick up to one trillion different aromas uh, out of the air or out of things we're tasting in our mouths. So things like cinnamon or caramel or um, cracker or bread, these are all aroma compounds. And so the biggest thing with flavor is smell. We can pick out all these aromas, right, Dan? But like, there's not a lot of us that are going to go like, oh, what does that smell like? Oh, yeah, it's like, um, like wet, wet grass in June, just after a, you know, morning uh, rain shower. It's very, very hard to like, describe the thing that we're smelling. Um, right. Because there's no really evolutionary advantage for us to describe all the smells. We just needed to know, like when we were cavemen and women, what smelled good and what smelled bad. Um, and so okay. you really have to train yourself when you're training your palate to say, smell something. So for example, there's a lot of uh, peppery notes in, in, in some, um, some beers. So say you're grinding white peppercorn or I'm grinding up coriander in my pestle and mortar at home, then I'll be grinding it and I'll sniff the bowl while I'm grinding and I'll say coriander, coriander, coriander to build that um aroma memory you want to be able to when the next time you smell dried coriander it automatically be that flavor word on your tongue so you have to build the connection between the aroma and the memory of that aroma in your brain um, because that's the path that's like full of brush and that's really um needs to be like that's the muscle you need to build so the okay. more that you like mindfully smell what you eat and drink, the more you'll build this flavor vocabulary 
And then when you smell your beer, you're like, oh, I know what that is. That's like the inside of a baguette or that is um, like my whole wheat toast in the morning when I toast it at five, at number five. Like you can get super exacting and that'll help, really help you develop a great palate. Okay. So what are some of the flavor? Oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, rewind just a little bit. I know when I... Uh, when I make my beer and I'll let, or when I'm drinking a really good beer, I'll put my hand over the top. I'll give it a good swirl. Then I'll smell it. And I find that just by doing that, I'm keeping a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the aromas and possible, maybe other sensory providing objects inside that glass. Just when I'm smelling, I can, it's like, if I do something, say like a Northern brew pale ale, I'll get things like maybe a small lemon or, or maybe a little bit of, I don't know, maybe some pine in there, mm -hmm. but when I taste it, it's totally different. Is there any correlation to wounds that could happen? Yeah, I mean, the way that we perceive flavor changes, right? So uh, when you're describing beer, um, you know, if any, any of your listeners are beer judges, you'll have that BJCP sheet. You usually break it down, and for the first thing I do when I describe a beer, say for a tasting note, is I'll take a look. Uh, well, I'll first I'll smell it because the aroma can dissipate. So I'll I'll do like a regular sniff and a, a covered sniff at the very least, and I'll write down all those uh, smells, the aroma words that I can find, and then I'll taste it. Um, and when you're tasting it, because your tongue is not really, it's not your nose, so you're gonna instead uh, you're gonna pick up flavors that you can't smell, and you kind of want to notice the stuff that you can't smell. So that's going to be what's the balance of the sweetness to the bitterness. Usually, unless it's a sour beer, then you're looking at sweetness versus acidity. And then you're looking at things like, is there any astringency? Like, did I put, did I dry hop it wrong? And so there's like too much like tannin almost from the hop material. Um, that's like that feeling of sucking on a, a, a tea bag or having like over yeah. tea. And then you want to look at the mouthfeel. The mouthfeel is really important. Like, what is the texture of the beer? Is the body light, medium, high? Is it highly carbonated? Is it uh, somewhere in the middle? Is it like a really low, gentle, almost cask-like carbonation? And then the major one is uh, another one that I find is harder to get your head around. Is like the actual texture of the liquid. Is it like thick and oily like a an 11% imperial stout that's been in your cellar for four years? Or is it right. really like crisp and um, almost like cutting like um, a really, really highly effervescent lager? Um, and so, or is it creamy, like an oatmeal stout, that kind of thing. So that it, when, you're, when it's in your mouth, that's kind of, you want to pay attention to mouthfeel and balance mostly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those aromas will change in your mouth too. Those aroma words, you might get lemon when you first smell it. And then when it's in your mouth, you might get grass. And it's just a different way of smelling. When you're smelling in your mouth, it's called retronasal inhalation because you're actually just breathing into your mouth and then out of your nose. So it's like going backwards through your nose. And it, it doesn't mean that the, the beer has changed. It's just that our sensory like capacity is very complex. So you'll have an ability to maybe pick up another aroma when you're sipping it than you do when you're smelling it with your frontwards nose before. So you can kind of add those words into your description. Oh, okay. I'm learning something new all the time. That's cool. Um, 
what are some of the things when we're actually either smelling a beer or tasting beer that we should notice for off flavors? Because I know for me, diacetyl, that's an obvious thing that kind of like butterscotch flavor in any beer should tell you right away that it's not good. So what else should we kind of be looking for? Well, I mean, off flavors are a pretty complex topic and I would recommend that especially if you think you're experiencing off flavors in your beer I would recommend taking an off flavors class if you can I know there's not a lot of classes during the pandemic or if you have a home brewing group buy an off flavor kit from the Siebel Institute or uh, Cicerone uses a company called Aroxa and then it gives you all the instructions to spike like a normal lager and you can all smell them together because I think the only way to understand off flavors is to really get um to get like a pure flavor spike and to smell it in a beer because it's really, really, yeah. you know, sometimes people get mixed up even with, with diacetyl. I've done it myself where I'm like, is this diacetyl or is it just a caramel malt? Because caramel and like butter popcorn are very different. Um, yeah. And so you really have to kind of train yourself on those. But I think the ones that pop up the most, probably that I see the most in both commercial and home brewing beers are diacetyl which is like, you know, mm. that butter, butter popcorn thing usually just means you haven't let your beer ferment long enough or your yeast conked out too early um, because the okay. yeast will, will take up the diacetyl if you leave it in long enough. Um, and then the other one is probably uh, DMS, which is like that. It's kind of like this one I find hard. It's like a creamed corn. And some people really like that smell or they don't notice it. Um, DMS can often be, it's like, uh, it's an all malt. And then if you don't boil long enough, um, or you don't have a, a strong enough rolling boil, the DMS isn't cooked off. Um, and then, oh, the big one I find also is acetaldehyde, which has a similar trajectory to diacetyl. It's just that that's like your green beer, your beer that's not finished yet. You maybe racked it off too early and um so it has this kind of like young character that's like a green apple uh sometimes like a raw banana peel sometimes like some people perceive it as halloween lipstick other ones i always get it as like a, if you open up a pumpkin and you scoop out the guts like a, a raw squash okay all right so if it's how can i say this um you're stuffing me for questions because you're giving me so much good stuff to, <laughs> to, to use. Um, so with, uh, with all flavors that we've, we've Dazzle, uh, DMS and, and that um, we've, you've talked about how to possibly avoid it, like make sure you got the, your, your boil right and make sure things are fermented up properly. What are some, steps that possibly that maybe a brewer may miss that may cause this do you think i mean i i know i'm guilty that i mean i'll be going through a brew day i'll be head down just going for it then i'll be going into a fermenter i'm like wait a minute did i forget to yeah i did well too late let's see what happens is there somewhere along the way do you think that maybe brewers may try to rush things just to try and get it out or don't realize they've made the mistake um, I mean, 
I think it's sometimes hard to tell when your beer is actually done. Like if you take a gravity reading, it can look like it's all done, but there might still be uh, the precursor for diacetyl in your liquid and you don't know yet. Like you're not able to tell. Um, So for diacetyl, especially you could Google something called like a diacetyl force test. And it's a really cheap way to check that your beer, that all the, um, the diacetyl has been converted into like a, a non-aromatic like flavorless compound so the yeast has done that already because if it hasn't and you bottle your beer or keg your beer then once it will still the precursor will still transform into diacetyl but there'll be no yeast left in your beer to take it up and that's when you get like a real diacetyl bomb and you think like oh man how could my buddy have like have canned this and not noticed um, but mm. it's because it wasn't there when they canned it. So the big thing is you could take that extra step at the end when you think you're finished and do this diacetyl force test. It basically just involves putting some uh, one, taking two samples of beer and putting one sample in a closed bottle and then heating it up um, for like 20 minutes. And that will, that will cause the diet, that'll give the diacetyl enough um uh, like energy, heat energy to convert. So when you cool mm-hmm. it back down, if you taste a lot of diacetyl in that bottle, but there's none in the other one, you know that it hasn't been converted yet and you have to give it more time before you rack off the yeast, okay. or even if everything else looks good. And now there's lots, and I'm sure it's in many home brewing textbooks too, this test. Uh, that one's pretty, pretty easy to find. And then, um, I mean, there used to be a thing where, oh, you know, like, Homebrewers get um, DMS because they have to cover their pot on the stove. I don't think many homebrewers brew that way anymore. I think most that I know at least have um, either like a gas burner outside or something. But if you are covering your mm-hmm. pot, that's like a major no-no because the it won't give the um, the compounds any they need to vaporize off basically. So if you're boiling with a covered pot, they'll just drip back in. Yeah. Um, again, I think that's like a kind of a thing of the past. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I use a robo brew at home, which is an all, all in one electric system. Uh-huh. That's great. And I leave the lid off when I've got it boiling. Cause I know if I leave the lid on, even though it's got a little hole in it, uh, that you could like you do like a kettle sour and all that for an yeah. airlock. Um, I, I still leave it off just so I can make sure one, I'm getting the boil off amounts that I need. Yeah. Correct. Two is like you said, to make sure all the uh, diacetyl or DMS gets boiled off. And, and two, well, it's, I just don't know any better. That's just how I know how to do it. So. Yeah. I think you definitely don't want condensation, you know, so that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots right. of little errors that people make along the way. I haven't homebrewed in, in a while. Um, but I think a, a major thing with homebrewing that I, I pick up is a sanitation. Like, you know, same with brewers. Most of, the, most of their day, the commercial brewers and homebrewers, the good ones, most of the time they're spending cleaning. So if you're not sanitizing properly everything from your system to your the end equipment to the wherever you're fermenting it, then you can have major, major bacterial um, contamination and it's, it's impossible mm-hmm. to reverse and it's not pretty. Yeah. And i some of my listeners are saying, why are you going through so many steps to make sure something's clean? Just dump some PBW in it, 
let it soak, rinse it out, and you're good to go. Uh, I work part-time in a brewery out here where I live about five minutes away called Straight Dog Brewing. Okay. And I, I learned from them that if you're going to do it, you do it right. And it means, you know, at the end of the day, you scrub everything down, you run sanitizer through it, you put the lid on, you seal it up. And then when it comes time for brew date, you run sanitizer through it yeah. again just to make sure everything's good to go. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. In some ways, you can kind of equate it with, like, you know, all the sanitation we're all doing right now for COVID. Like, you're going to double, triple, quadruple check it because it's really easy to, like, if it's your kid, you're going to make sure your kid's washing their hands like crazy, um, not just, like, one time a day. Mm-hmm. And I think with your brewing equipment, you want to give it the same care because it's just not worth it. Like, you put, you spend a lot of time creating the recipe, buying the ingredients, bottling it all up or kegging it all up and it's something that you know i know homebrewers have such a deep love and such a deep pride in what they're making and so to Mm -hmm. cut corners on the sanitation is just kind of like really putting at risk like an entire day of your time you know yeah i mean i i know personally uh, I've had to dump about two batches of beer so far over the last couple of years, just because one, I, I screwed up the recipe, and two, one of them got infected. Yeah. So, I mean, thank God I was able to determine that it got infected before I even put it into bottles. Yeah. But I, I found is once because um, I have a firm Zilla, I just don't have the means yet to do uh, oxygen free transfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to crack the top with a siphon and start chilling it. But as soon as I cracked it open, I got like a big whiff of say like, like really bad, either apple cider or balsamic vinegar smell going right up through my nose. And I was just like, Oh, that's bad, bad, bad. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Down the drain. Yeah. How did that feel? It hurt. Yeah. It does hurt. (laughs) Right. Cause you're, you're also like fermenting it for a week too. So you're just waiting and waiting and, um, but I think it's, yeah, you know, absolutely. it's a lesson and sometimes it's really hard. It's frustrating when you can't trace it back to your mistake. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. But you just, sometimes you just don't get it right. Which is, that's part of the process. It's part of learning, right? Like, I can't tell you how many things, how many times I burned some meal that I spent like so much time making and I get so mad at myself and I've dumped batches yeah. of beer as well. So um, I think it's just part of the learning curve. I think it's a rite of passage, personally. Yeah. I mean, unless you've like spoiled at least one or two batches or felt the pain of having to dump five gallons worth of wort or fermented beer that you thought you were hoping to be beer down the drain, you really don't understand the pain of what it is to be a For brewer. sure, for sure. So, so that's a that's pretty much everything, Crystal. Thanks a lot. I do have one more question mm-hmm. for you. It's a little off topic. A little off topic. What is your favorite style of beer right now? And what is your favorite brewery in and around where you live? Ooh, um, that's a good question. I uh, I haven't been drinking much beer in the last eight months because I've been pregnant, but uh, my favorite kind of like beer that uh, I don't drink a lot of, but it's kind of my, my, my um, desert Island beer is our Flanders reds. And I, I really am. A, I'm kind of a snob about them. I don't like Flanders reds from really uh, most, most Canadian breweries. There's a couple in the U S I've had that I like, but I think the best ones are still really made in the Flanders region of Belgium. I think it's hard to nail it. 
um because they have such okay. a complex like those the house culture at, at um Rodenbach is just something that you can't mimic right um I think that yeah. last time they analyzed that yeast strain there was over 25 different strains of um bacteria and different yeasts like wild and and all, all kinds of things so that kind of like house character I really admire and I just I really dig it so Rodenbach Grand Cru is great I have a, a cellar full of Rodenbach vintage bottles that I buy every year at the LCBO and I, I'd stockpile them it's a li- little bit of a problem right. um I love it because it's like it is like drinking a fine balsamic vinegar and I think it can be really food friendly and it's one that some of my friends who don't love beer, they usually love this beer because it drinks more like a wine or a cider. So I like beers that surprise people. Um, mm-hmm. And I love, I still love, you know, juicy IPAs. Not super thick ones, though. I'm pretty picky about the body these days, I think. And uh, and here, you know, it's difficult for me because I still write about breweries. So I can't really say what my favorite one is. I try to be unbiased uh, in that sense. But And I'm in Toronto, so there's tons of good ones all around here. But my local, the one I probably go to the most in my neighborhood, is Left Field Brewery. I really like what they do. They are awesome. I've had, uh, I think I've had their, uh, they have a hibiscus Mm -hmm. salad or ghost. That is absolutely phenomenal. If I could, if whenever I find that here in Ottawa, I'm usually buying it by like six or seven at a shot. Um, Thank you so much for doing this, Crystal. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, hopefully later down the line, maybe I can have you back on the show and we could talk about the BJCP. That sounds fun. BJCP time. <laughs> okay, thanks, Dan. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm a beer judge no, too, no. so I'd be happy to come on. Yeah, it's I, I, I'm really, really passionate about more people judging beer because I think that's another huge way to build your palate is to become a beer judge. And it's really, it's free, basically. Um, so it's like right. extremely accessible and we always, I know all over the States and Canada, we need more judges. Um, and I just think it's like, it's a great way to be part of your community as well. Well, awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Crystal. Best of luck to you and your future addition to your family. And, uh, we'll t- be talking later on. Down the awesome. Line. Take care, Dan. You too. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. So I'd like to say thank you to Crystal for being on the show this week. Lots of information and also uh, possibly another show coming down the line about talking about the BJCP, the Beer Judge Certification Program. So that's something I'm thinking about doing. Um, Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate you uh, tuning in. Uh, Leave me a comment. uh, Leave me a review on uh, Apple, Spotify, on my Instagram, on my Facebook page and whatnot. Uh, It helps me know what's going on. Also, I need to say a thank you to the guys at Broken Stick at Brew Donkey for promoting the show. And I also need to apologize to you folks for the next two shows as the audio was a little off. Uh, That's due to the fact that my computer kind of crapped out and I had to uh, work off my cell phone. So thanks a lot for bearing with me and coming along for the ride and a beer or two along the way. And I'll see you on the other side, guys. (laughs) 